Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption, so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is what you can do to save the planet. Our guest is Justin Gillis, author, consultant, and speaker, and former climate change journalist at the New York Times. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. And those are at futurized.org slash episodes, with collections of episodes organized by topic. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. You can check them out at futurize.org slash sponsors. Or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast yourself, uh, you can go to futurize.org slash store. Before anything else, please make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. Again, go to futurize.org and subscribe. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Justin, how are you? Welcome. I'm good. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited to have you on. You uh, have been so engaged in this issue for many, many years, and you just uh, finished a book that we'll talk about. The Big Fix seems to have been uh, an occupation of yours for a while. You you were running a series called The Big Fix earlier. Uh, I guess it's the decade for big fixes. Um, so, Justin, just uh, quickly, I'm going to try to run through your career and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you started out uh, at you know, University of Georgia, you have a journalism degree, and then you started out covering public policy, went on to do uh, an MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellowship, and then somewhat turned into an environment reporter uh, for the New York Times, uh, and now you've been a fellow at Harvard uh, working on environmental issues. Uh, uh, because you left journalism essentially to, to do a book, which you've been working on for a good while. Um, and now I guess it's a, n- a new chapter in your life. And I'm sort of curious about, uh, you know, how you got here and what you're doing now and, uh, and why you wrote this book. So, um, you know, what did I get wrong, first of all? <laughs> Was this what you have been doing over the last few Nothing. years? Nothing. That's all correct. Yeah. And you're right about the book taking a while. I actually... Uh, left the Times uh, uh, in late 2017. So the book has taken, I mean, of course, you know, it went off to the printer several months ago, but the book overall took us more than four years, I would say. Now, some of that was the pandemic and the lockdowns and all of that. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was not a, it was not a light lift. Let's put it that way. Well, I think that's interesting, right? Because big fixes are seldom light lifts. So uh, maybe we can kind of start there because the take in the book I find, well, not only interesting, but fundamentally it's a shift in the way that you uh, are asking people to see their role in saving the planet. Because 
I guess historically, uh, there's been this idea that yes, we are consumers. We can, you know, we can affect change through how we behave in a certain way. But you find that sorely lacking at this present moment. Can you maybe just start there? And, and w- what is wrong with the way that most people see their own role in affecting change overall? Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. We are asking people to think about this in a different way. Uh, uh, and it's not, it's not that the way people now think about it is, is irrational. I mean, um, I've had the experience of speaking on uh, many college campuses and, you know, in church basements and so forth. And invariably, after a talk about the climate problem, somebody will raise their hands and say something like, um, you know, this problem is so big and I feel so small, what can I do about it? And people out there who, who try to answer that question for themselves uh, tend to come to, and, and this is encouraged by a lot of what you see in the, in the press and the, the, the news and so forth, um, people tend to come to the idea that, well, the only real power I have is in what I buy. So I'm going to try to be a green consumer. I'm going to uh, see if I can cut down on meat. I'm going to try to buy less plastic. I'm going to try to recycle better. All of these things that we sort of, uh, you know, know about and are kind of part of the common conversation these days. Uh, and our our position, our argument to people is that's all fine, but your real power is uh, less as a green consumer and more as a green citizen. What's called for here is citizenship, and the reason is that uh, the energy system is just so big, uh, it's so enormous, we're so dependent on it, that uh, it is not going to change in a substantial way without public policy. Now, not all of that public policy needs to come from Washington. And this is also a crucial point that we're trying to make to people in the book. When Washington is frozen up, as it seems to be so much these days, uh there are opportunities here at the state level, at the local level, at your town hall, at your school board, believe it or not, to make a real difference. And that's what we're asking people to do is to get beyond thinking of themselves as green consumers and start making political demands, not as a full-time occupation, but a few times a year, a little bit of their time devoted to this could go a long way. Well, it's interesting you point this out because I guess I kind of, for various parts of my life, I considered myself a green consumer. And but but you know that started a long time ago. Uh, this wasn't new. I mean, green consumer is you know thirty years old, right? So we might have smart thermostats now, and that might be what what it meant, means to be a green consumer now. But I mean, even twenty thirty years ago, being green meant something. It was probably the beginning of recycling. Uh, it, it was you know, and nowadays it's like cooking plant-based burgers and all that stuff. And maybe that makes people feel good. And I, I guess you're not saying that these actions are wrong. They're just far, far insufficient, and they are perhaps even very obvious right now. But out of the other actions that you're asking people to take, so turning yourself into a green citizen, holding your own. I, local government accountable to certain things. That does mean, though, that you have to take pretty aggressive positions and you have to take views and, and figure out where you stand on these things because there certainly there are choices to be made, right? Politics is about making choices and that means less resources is something else. 
How do you deal with that aspect in the book? Yeah, well, at the first and most basic level, becoming a green citizen means uh, letting this issue uh, decide how you vote, right? I mean, that we would we would describe that as the sort of bare minimum of engagement that people ought to have, uh, you know, uh, saving the earth, cutting emissions as a prime consideration in deciding uh, who they vote for. Uh, and by the way, that does not necessarily mean always voting for the Democrats, although they have tended to be the party uh, in in recent years that's most committed to this cause. But we desperately need for Republicans to start crossing this divide, uh, uh, right, and becoming advocates for climate action as well, or at least get out of the way. And so uh, I, I'm a huge believer in sort of everybody out there paying attention to what the Republicans are saying and being open to uh, a climate message coming from Republican candidates. But, you know, if you put this high in your, in your voting priority, you probably are going to be voting for Democrats most of the time. That's sort of point number one is just let it influence how you vote to a significant degree. It's not the only issue, right? I mean, people have other priorities, so this may not be number one for some people, but we'd like it to be high on the list. Um, Beyond that, yeah, it is about making choices. Right now, we're not even really thinking about those choices, right? We're, we're, we're barely making, as a citizenry, we're barely making any political demands here. Uh, yeah, we are making demands in Washington. And as, as we just discussed, Washington is sort of frozen up and, you know, uh, we, we get a little bit of policy through. It's not been a complete uh, dry hole, but it's been pretty frustrating. Uh, but a lot of people just don't realize there are so many things. Every single day, decisions are being made at state and local levels to perpetuate the fossil fuel economy when alternatives are becoming available. Uh, so, for example, how many parents out there have stopped and thought about uh, the, the cold hard fact that every morning their children get on a school bus fueled by dirty diesel fuel and ride to school, you know, breathing the fumes from that diesel school bus, uh, which is a cause of asthma, which is rising in the United States. It's become a very serious problem of, of the childhood years. Uh, how many parents have gone down and said to the local school board, I'm sorry, we want you to buy electric buses. We want you to get past this. Uh, in most parts of the country, that demand has not even been made. And I, I can give many other examples where uh, the citizenry is just not engaged and therefore the local politicians, even if they are well-meaning about climate, and a lot of them are, uh, they just aren't moving fast enough. And they're not going to until we go get in their faces and make demands. Um, Justin, I, I want to move to some slightly sort of uh, big and, and very uh, concrete issues in a second. But before that... This issue of Democrats versus Republicans, I mean, what is your explanation why uh, Republicans generally, and it's a general statement, and you just made it a similar statement, uh, over the last few years haven't really engaged as much as one might hope or think would be possible in the climate debate? Is it just simply that the tools available or the imaginations of politicians have sort of pigeonholed any sort of climate action as big government or subsidies or something that's so obviously wrong in a Republican mindset, uh, you know, and so, so you know, is that the case? And, and also forecasting a little bit, I mean, do you think that there are 
Republican friendly policies for climate when, when you see yourself as a green citizen? Are, are there ways that they could rethink this? If you, if you are a Republican at heart in America today, how can you be a green citizen and still you know, enact Republican ideals? Uh, I think the history is a little darker than the way you framed it, actually, and I'll sort of explain that uh, in a minute. Uh, you have to rerun, uh, you know, recent events a little bit to kind of understand this. Everybody, you know, forgets that John McCain ran uh, for president against Barack Obama in 2008 on a climate pat- platform that wasn't that different from Obama's. Uh, and, you know, neither of them had a very strong climate platform, but there wasn't much differentiation between the two presidential candidates that year. Uh, on climate. And um, McCain paid essentially no price in the Republican primaries for taking that sort of pro-climate position. And then uh, when he lost and got into the Senate, played a major role in trying to get a climate bill through. Uh, You know, in the early Obama years, though, we had the sort of Tea Party wave, the Tea Party backlash in American politics uh, uh, with uh, you know, in reaction to Obama and, you know, I, let's, I guess let's not digress and talk about the sort of racism that I think is at the root of a lot of this. But in reaction to Obama, you had the Tea Party wave, uh, you know, a sort of a far right backlash that, as we know, then transmogrified ultimately into Trumpism. You know, I mean, the, you know, that party has gone pretty far to the right. They would say the Democrats have gone uh, pretty far to the left on a lot of issues, and that's probably true too. So you have the parties pulling apart, uh, uh, moderates, you know, being killed, uh, not literally, but, you know, their careers being wrecked in both parties. So the the ability to kind of forge deals has sort of broken down. Um, You know, roughly in these same years, you know, the climate issue became highly identified with Al Gore, of course, as a result of an inconvenient truth. And uh, so, you know, we we worked ourselves into a position where, uh, you know, climate was just anathema in the Republican Party. Now, here's the very strange thing, though. If you poll the American public and you say right now and you say, uh, you know, is climate change a problem? Is it a human cause? That kind of question. You get, you know, almost 70 percent of the public saying yes. Uh, Now, those people don't put it as a particularly high priority. That is the essence of the problem Hal and I are trying to tackle in the book. But they they say, yes, it's a problem. If you ask the question, do you support clean energy, Uh, you know, wind, solar, batteries, et cetera, you get closer to 90 percent. So there is this delta of people. I think they're mostly Republicans. Uh, who aren't really down with the cause of climate, but who support clean energy. Who are they? Well, it's actually a motley crew, but there are people like Chuck Grassley, for instance, the senior senator from Iowa, who has supported wind power, uh, you know, for going on 30 years now and is the author of, you know, the federal subsidies for wind power uh, because it's good for the farmers, right? So, you have this whole swath in the middle of the country where wind in particular has completely broken through the sort of political uh, uh, deadlock and has been supported by Republican politicians because it's good for their rural economies. It's good for rural economic development. Uh, and, you know, so one theory of the case here is, 
uh, and I do think this is the right thing to do in some situations. Let's just stop talking about climate and start and talk about clean energy. You know, I mean, let's blow past the disagreement. Now, when I said it's darker than you framed it, part of that is a big part of that is, uh, you know, the fossil fuel companies are funneling money still big loads of money to, you know, Repub almost exclusively Republican politicians who get up and lie about the climate problem. Uh, like James Inhofe uh, and and a bunch of the people in the House, a bunch of the uh, uh, Freedom Caucus people in the House. Uh, so, you know, we've had this disinformation campaign kind of deliberately, you know, deliberate lies, you know, spread into the American body politic by the fossil fuel companies who are protecting their profits, who don't want to see, you know, uh, public policy supporting uh, alternatives. And, um, that's a part of the story. I mean, money in our politics and the sort of collapse of any restraints on money in our politics is a big part of the issue here. Hmm. One, one other issue, though, seems to be, and that's not just in the U.S., it's internationally as well, is that the impact, the most apparent impact of, you know, we can call it climate change for now, or maybe like you said, let's uh, skip that, but the impact really on, on any sort of environmental issue first hits uh, you know, groups that don't have a lot of choices, for example, in terms of where they find themselves. Um, so may, is there something progressive, really? I mean, it is a progressive issue, essentially, to care about that. And how do you get around this issue? Because if it was just all about individual choices and things that are very important to Republican uh, viewpoints, uh, well, I'm guessing, you know, for, uh, in, in that ideology, you, so you, you always have choices and you can move around and all of that stuff. But the, the big thing with climate, for example, is that it sort of hits a lot of people that don't have the choice of, of moving about and, and being more flexible. How do you, how do you address that issue? Uh, because it would seem to me that without getting, uh, getting, you know, around, uh, the issue of, this being a progressive cause, um, yeah. then you can't make any progress. Yeah, it, it's it's a really good question. It's a complex and deep topic. We could spend you know a couple hours on this on this issue alone. Probably, uh, uh, there, there's absolutely no question that the you know the sort of frontline victims uh, of of climate change are poor people who are uh, you know. Uh, don't have the the resources to kind of uh, tackle, uh, you know, what's hitting them. I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the fires in California have hit these uh, fairly poor rural mountain communities where, uh, you know, people people you know are fleeing for their lives. They may be underinsured and not have the money to rebuild. Uh, and of course, globally, worldwide, you know, the the first and foremost victims of the climate crisis are. Uh, people who did the least cause it, right? You know, poor, very poor people living in Bangladesh, very poor people living in Africa are really on the front lines. And so we call these frontline communities. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think the politics of how to deal with that is complex. We, we, we need an appeal to better off people to say, look, you know, in your refusal to make political demands here and your refusal to countenance change, you are hurting uh, poor people, maybe without quite realizing it, but you are. Uh, and, you know, isn't there something about, you know, the Christian faith or the Jewish faith or the, or, or the Muslim faith that says we shouldn't do that? We should be, you know, uh, 
So there's a there's a there's an appeal from values and an appeal from ethics that I think we can make to the broad community. The, my other answer to it is we need empowerment of these frontline communities. Uh, let me give you you know just one example in the history of the United States. I you I, I think you did grow up here, right? So I'm not sure how familiar you are with this history. I grew up you know I was born in 1960, so I kind of watched a lot of this play out with my own eyes. When the freeways were built and, you know, uh, the white flight in the United States, which is the, you know, an, an underlying cause of our very high energy use, right? You know, people fled the cities and live out in these sort of remote suburbs and maybe they drive back in for a job. And so the freeways are the thing that uh, that created the infrastructure, you might say, that enabled white flight in America. When those freeways were put in, they were put straight through the middle of black communities in essentially every major city in America. So again and again and again, and it was overtly racist uh, uh, set of policies of deliberately barreling down the hearts of black neighborhoods to put freeways through them. So that's a historical injustice related in a way to the fossil fuel economy, but it's also a continuing injustice. So in driving dirty cars with, you know, the put out emissions over those freeways, we are still pouring exhaust uh, into, the, into the communities on either side of the freeways that still live there, the black and brown um, communities. So, you know, for a long time, they were so disempowered, people weren't aware of it. Now, happily, we have an entire movement called the environmental justice movement that is very aware of what happened. And, you know, so there's ongoing work to sort of make people aware, to, to politicize them, uh, and to begin to repair. So cleaning up the highways, you know, if we do nothing but change out, you know, gasoline cars for electric cars, we've gone some distance toward ameliorating this injustice because we'll at least eliminate the the asthma causing, you know, emissions that are wafting into these neighborhoods. Uh, you, you can plot as, childhood asthma attacks on a map uh, of, say, Los Angeles, and you will see the freeways emerging on that map. That's how vivid it really is. And uh, so, you know, it's long, hard work to sort of pull um, these folks into politics as allies of the green movement, but that work has begun. And, and, uh, you know, we all need to be making political demands uh, that the frontline communities need help first. So, Justin, let's hit on some of the concrete issues. So we've touched here on urban and suburban issues and, and highways and, and electric vehicles. So that's one fairly concrete thing that I think everybody in America and, and beyond right, has noticed that uh, in, in most economies now, electric vehicles are becoming available uh, both to the consumer, but also uh, invariably, you know, they're becoming available for changing the transportation system, perhaps even just beyond, uh, you know, buying your own electric vehicle. They electrification all, you know, overall has has some bigger implications. What are some of the other areas where you think people should engage? So you said, you know, to that point in, in the local community, what are some of the other issues where these, uh, you, you speak about seven areas, what are some of these areas where one should start. So transportation and cleaning that up is is clearly important, and I think everybody understands, you know, the basics of transportation, yeah. and it affects all of us. So that's that's pretty clear. 
although it's you know it's an infrastructure technology it's expensive it's not very obvious you know perhaps to to people how to, how to act what are some other areas you would suggest people inform themselves on yeah one of the ways i'll mention i'll mention let me mention a couple of state things and then one or two um, local things that people can work on on transportation itself a lot of people don't realize uh that uh, whether electric vehicles are even available in your state market um, has, or, or the degree to which they are available, which models are available, has everything to do with state policy. Uh, if a state government has adopted California emission standards, which they are allowed to do under federal law, uh, that sets up a set of requirements that completely changes the local market for electric vehicles. It completely changes what you're able to go to the dealership and buy. So, you know, we're approaching the point where about half the American states have now done that, but half have not. So that's a, and you know, they would tend to be the redder states, right? So that's a huge political target at the state level uh, is to get those state governments to do this pretty simple thing, which is adopt the California emission standards. It's a, absolutely straightforward pathway. We know how to do it. Uh, it does require laws in some states and other states it can be done by executive action. But, you know, that's a political target is to make that demand at the state level uh, if, if a state has not done this yet. Uh, uh, another state level demand that people can make uh, or, or way to engage is a lot of people don't realize that the electricity system uh, what we build in the United States to power our homes and businesses is entirely under the control of the government. It is not in any sense a market. Uh, and, you know, you'll have these people say, you know, let the market take care of it. Well, you know, in electricity, there is no market. Uh, there's, you know, uh, uh, monopoly power companies that are heavily regulated at the state level by these outfits called public utility commissions or public service commissions. Uh, and, uh, you know, people don't know they exist. They don't know that these things operate sort of like a little like courts where they are required to take public input and sort of uh, listen to, to public opinion. Uh, so uh, if you live in a state uh, that does not already have, I mean, the first, one of the first things people ought to do is figure out what is going on in their state. What is the electricity mix now? How much progress has the state made? Is it moving forward? Uh, and if it's not, beginning to, begin to speak up. I mean, you can, you can raise this question every time somebody asks for your vote. Are they, are they on board with uh, cleaning up the electricity system or not? Uh, and then people can go down and testify, or these days testify by, uh, you know, Zoom call, uh, you know, testify virtually. They can send letters. I watched this happen in several states, including in Colorado, where a bunch of mothers, you know, with six-month-old babies on their hips went down and testified in favor of clean energy, uh, and it made a real difference. So we need, we need more people engaging in that and just, again, making the political demand. Uh, let me give you an example at the local level. Um, a lot of people don't understand the importance of building codes or how those codes get adopted. Uh, now, the safety of where you live uh, is, is at stake. So is your house going to burn down or not? Is the, is, the, is the wiring in the house going to be safe? 
that all depends on enforcement of a building code. We've had these things for well over 100 years now. They have been critical to uh, life and safety in our buildings. I mean, it used to be the entire city's burned down, right? That's now just really impossible because we enforce uh, building codes. Well, those building codes need to be turned to a new purpose, which is making the buildings more efficient. Uh, we need to get gas out of our buildings. We've got to stop adding gas to newly built buildings. Getting it out of the old ones is a harder problem, but uh, we need to stop the build out of the gas infrastructure right now. Uh, and we need to begin to uh, tighten the building codes on, on energy use. Many people don't realize that their local, like the town hall or the county commission, adopts a building code usually every three years. Uh, they're usually adopting some sort of a model code that's a national, nationally drawn up, uh, but then maybe tweaked for local conditions. Uh, people need to find out about that. When is the building code coming up again? Are we behind in staying up to date on the building code? Some uh, towns in America, a lot of towns in America are 10 years, even 15 years behind. So they haven't adopted the latest building standards. So people need to learn about that and realize every three years, there's going to be this cycle where your town decides what to do. Go down to City Hall and have your voice heard. Hmm. So uh, one of the areas that uh, a lot of people focus on is this idea of innovation and technology. And some people think of it as, you know, uh, science will fix and technology will fix all these issues. Historically, you know, we have clever people who see an opportunity. And if climate ever becomes such a big opportunity, uh, you know, and to some extent, uh, you know, it is in, in, in the case of electric vehicles, then, you know, there will be an Elon Musk who comes and jumps in there. And, and that's how we are going to solve all these things. So it's a version of this market theory that you were talking about earlier. To what extent has that been working uh, on environmental issues and to what extent will it work in the future? And, and even if it is working as an individual, uh, I guess, investor, you know, everyone has some savings or, or you know, perhaps, uh, is there any way that they can get involved in these more futuristic technologies that promise to clean stuff up? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it probably won't surprise you that I'm going to circle back to, you know, it's all about the political demands we make. But let me let me explain that. Um, uh, it, it's true that, you know, innovation is a critical piece of the puzzle here. And, you know, we we've seen examples now, these dramatic gains in uh, or declines, really, in the cost of of wind power, solar power. Uh, batteries are declining in cost, which is uh, which is what's made it possible to make electric cars and so on. Uh, people need to understand that the basic scientific research that led to all of that uh, is supported by the government and specifically by the federal government. And we're not spending much money on it. Uh, 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 you know, the calculation was made a few years back that the American people spend more money every year buying potato chips than they spend uh, on, you know, financing uh, energy innovation, the basic science of energy innovation. Uh, you know, we, we've maybe gotten to the point where we're spending a little more on energy than we are on potato chips. But if you correct for inflation, we are still not at the point that we were in the late 1970s, early 1980s after the oil shocks. Uh, you know, we were spending more on energy innovation back then than, than we are now. So 
on that most basic measure, what are we spending on basic scientific innovation? We're, we're, we're just we're just not there. And it's critically important. I mean, the you know, the lithium ion batteries uh, that are, you know, such a, a wow thing now and, you know, are are the you know, the essential ingredient in the cell phone you have in your pocket, not to mention the Tesla driving down the road, those were created with, you know, federal grants, federal research grants, you know, to a, to a specifically a university in Texas, I believe. So, uh, you know, we need, we, need to, we need to make a political demand to spend more money on innovation. That's point number one. Secondly, uh, these things do not come out of the laboratory uh, cheap, right? That is not how it works. Uh, if you come out of the laboratory as, let's say, you know, a you know battery that can power an electric car, you're compete. You're you're coming out at very small volume initially, and you're competing against a fossil fuel economy that's had a hundred year head start and massive, massive, massive subsidies from the government, right, over, over those years. Uh, subsidies that are still going on, by the way. So uh, the way we get these, these uh, technologies to be cheaper and to become affordable is by scaling them up. So in some cases, this happens naturally. Everybody who saw a cell phone wanted one, right? And uh, because of that intense consumer demand, it's a market that just scaled naturally. And as it got bigger and bigger, uh, the, the, the cost of the phones, you know, went down what we call, what we call a learning curve. And, uh, you know, the price came down and the whole thing became affordable to ordinary people. Uh, you know, uh, equipment for powering the electric grid, you know, consumers don't have any real influence over that, right? You're not thinking about that when you flip a switch, you know, in your living room, somebody else is thinking about that. So, that again is conscious government policy. We have to make decisions to scale these technologies up. And that means inevitably we have to overpay for them in the early years, but we're doing that with a specific goal in mind. And that's to bring the cost down to the point that it becomes competitive or at least uh, affordable. So we've, we've seen this movie now a bunch of times. We've seen it happen with solar panels. We've seen it happen with uh, wind turbines and so on. We need to do this again and again for all the types of technology uh, that are going to be needed to to clean up the economy entirely. Right? We need new ways of producing cement. We need new ways of producing steel. These are all sources of high sources of emissions. And so, uh, again, political demands. We have to make political demands here that we that we adopt the policies needed and that we go faster. There's just no other way. But Justin, a lot of people don't make political demands, presumably because they don't perceive that they have any demands. So I guess my question back to you always is, you know, what's in it for me for, for these various groups? You, you made convincing arguments about asthma to inspire parents to take some action in schools. Uh, but a lot of this learning curve you speak about, it, it is despite, you know, this very vivid example of of a learning curve, and, and in your book you speak about how you know the prices of wind and solar energy and all that stuff has gone down, and the price of batteries is now, uh, you, you know, at a level where we can produce these big car batteries, which you know still are of course expensive, but they can at least be put into cars, and some people can maybe even rent them, and you know, so so batteries has come down and is perhaps coming further down. 
but but these are abstract things to people because they take 10, 20 years to to come down this learning curve. Um, so is it long-term thinking then that individuals just, we, we just got to suck it up and start thinking long-term, thinking about our kids and our retirement and how, what kind of world we want to live in then? Or are there really practical sort of what's in it for me is to all of these issues that you're outlining in your book? Oh, I think there's a lot of what's in it for me. I mean, so, you know, people may, I think you're right, that people have a little bit of a hard time seeing that because they don't make the connection between the fossil economy and sort of problems in their daily lives. But, um, you know, to give you an example, I mean, there's a study out in the last couple of days calculating that, um, uh, that the remaining emissions in the United States from burning fossil uh, are killing something like 50,000 people a year. Uh, now, worldwide, this is an enormous number. It's like 5 million people a year are being directly killed by emissions from fossil fuels. It's one of the leading causes of death worldwide. Still a pretty big ca cause of death in the United States. 50,000 people a year is uh, considerably more people than are dying on the highways from car accidents, for example. Um, so, uh, y you know, uh, it, it is difficult because, you know, there's no sort of visible, I mean, pe people look at the air and it doesn't look dirty, right? We don't have the smog that we had kind of 50 years ago. Uh, so which was fixed, by the way, largely, right? Because people did feel it and, and, and people acted and there, there were policy initiatives on smog, right? Yeah, that's right. And, 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 and it, was, it was easier, you know, in a way, the environmental movement is a victim of its own success, right? You know, a lot of the remaining pollution is not as visible to people. It's harder to see. So, yeah, there was a big cleanup on smog, but, you know, the cleanup is incomplete. The air is not entirely clean, right? We have a Clean Air Act, but we don't yet have clean air. And so, uh, you know, people need to understand that and understand, no, this is actually real. If your kid has asthma, that asthma, you, you know, the, I mean, why the case rate's going up, we're not, it's not entirely clear, at least to me, but it's clear that the triggers are, you know, pollutants in the air, you know, the, uh, diesel exhaust, you know, the fine particles that come out of, uh, burning fossil fuels and coal plants and so forth. Uh, so th there's that there's that issue. I mean, people need to understand the just the savings in healthcare cost uh, in the United States from making this transition is probably large enough by itself to pay for the transition. Now we don't really do the accounting that way, right? We don't take money out of the healthcare pocket and sort of move it over into the electricity pocket. That's just sort of not our our system is set up, but but the but the savings are real nonetheless. So there's that issue. I mean, I do believe in sort of asking people to kind of start where they live and with what they care about the most. So this is one reason I'm so big on the electric school bus thing. Uh, you know, lots of people have kids who are, who are riding to school in buses. Uh, they don't realize that's an exposure for their children. Uh, and... You know, we have a problem right now, which is the scale of these buses is still pretty small, so they're still pretty pricey. 
you can, if you're a school board, you can kind of get around that probably by leasing the buses rather than buying them. You can sort of equalize the cost that way. But we need this, we need the electric school buses to scale up so that they become more affordable. Again, we've got to rerun this same playbook. And, you know, parents going down to the school board and making this demand on behalf of their children who are riding dirty school buses to work, that's a really good place to start. You know, if, 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 you, if you want to engage in this problem in no other way, that's one place to start. And uh, I think there's a bunch of examples right that, like that yeah. where if, if people just had a little more imagination, I mean, anybody living near a coastline is watching, you know, these higher and higher tides. And, you know, if you're driving around Norfolk, you're driving through salt water many times a year now. So we're, we're beginning to see the impacts well, you know, folks, if we want to stop it, if we want to slow it down, we have to put our energy into cutting emissions. It's really that simple. And so people just need to get a little more imaginative about the stakes here and their own personal uh, stake in this whole thing. So you said imaginative. I, I, I want to jump to that in a quick second uh, and, and think more about the future. But, you know, it's, the, these are big questions. Uh, so to warm up for that, I was just curious about a separate issue, which is, you know, one way to uh, to act is to act together in partnership. I was just curious, how did you meet your co-authors? I mean, because that's an example of a partnership. You, you said the book took a while to write. You have written an exquisite, you know, compilation of, of uh, actions, and but a lot of facts and a lot of uh, work went into the narrative of this book. I'm just curious, uh, you know, because that is one strategy is to partner up if you want to get smarter about something. How did you meet your co-author? Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the book just simply would not exist without Hal. It's really, you know, it's really Hal's ideas and in a lot of ways and my reporting to kind of kind of help fill out those ideas and and put them in the context of sort of real world uh, examples. Uh, we, we met because I was, uh, you know, on the beat for The New York Times. I actually first met him when I, I was an editor there in charge of their energy coverage. And then I moved back uh, a couple of years after that, I moved back into reporting. Uh, and I was meeting a lot of people and sort of, uh, you know, trying to wrap my mind around this very complicated subject of climate change and, and what do we do about it. Uh, and, you know, Matt met Hal a few times over the years when he would come through New York. And the more I listened, the more I thought this guy is making more sense than anybody else out there. Uh, mm-hmm. And why do I say that? Uh, uh, Hal was talking about how we build on the systems that already exist. How do we take building codes and turn them uh uh, into tools for decarbonization. How do we take uh, car efficiency standards, which are called CAFE standards, and turn them into tools for decarbonization? So unlike a lot of other people, he wasn't fantasizing about, you know, huge new federal laws. Uh, I mean, we'd love to have a huge new federal law, but it's really difficult to get, right? Uh, a lot of people out there still fantasize about, you know, a big hefty tax on emissions as the way to decarbonize the economy. Yeah, if you could make it high enough, that would work. But the problem is we can't politically get it done. That's been tried for 30 years in the United States and it can't, it has not happened. I don't think it's going to happen. So, you know, uh, it just grew. I, I, it must have been, you know, some Tuesday in the shower when the idea hit me, uh, you know, 
there needs to be a book with this this guy's ideas in it. And then my second thought was maybe we should write that together. I was, I was originally thinking about urging Hal to write a book. And then I thought, you know, for to be, you know, it needs a reporter's voice as well to be kind of accessible to a mass audience. And so that's how we partnered up. And, you know, as I say, in 2017, started uh, started working on the book. Um, I mean, I take your, your analogy. I mean, people... One of the one of the things people need to think about is here is how do I find allies, right? You, you, this is complicated stuff. Um, you, it's hard on your own to sort of figure out what the right policies are, what's going on, what to go advocate. So one of the things we talk about in the book, uh, and I'm, I'm going to repeat the title here, The Big Fix. People can pre-order it right now uh, or order it from their favorite bookseller. Uh, Harvey and Gillis are the authors. Uh we talk about in the book the various groups that you can sign up for. Now, it does depend on what state you're in, but uh, in just about every state, some group is tracking clean energy issues. And if you just get on that mailing list, uh, you can find out about uh, uh, issues that are coming up, certainly at the state level and sometimes the local level as well. And um, I, I, I urge people to get involved because one of the things you'll do is you'll find a community here. I mean, there are other people out there that care. And uh, a big part of what we need to do is we need to find each other. It's just critical to, to, to building uh, a, a political effort here. I urge people to look at some of the national organizations. 350.org is one. Uh, you know, the mainline environmental groups, Sierra Club, Nat, Nat, Natural Resources Defense Council. These people are all working on climate uh, pretty hard. So, uh, you know, find allies. So we've talked a lot about the importance of action in the here and now. So this might be an oddball question here. And it's also asking you to put on your futurist hat. But, you know, my last question is, you know, looking at the next decade, uh, considering how big of an ask it is that you guys have to a very broad audience of individuals, uh, what do you think will happen to this topic here? Will there be a big fix or... Uh, yeah, how do you think around that? Even just on a decade's yeah. scope. Let me. I guess let me start beyond the decade, and then I'll come back and talk about the next decade. Um, I don't think there's any question that we will clean up the economy and we will uh, bring emissions to zero um, ultimately. And by the way, we have to get to zero or net zero anyway before the, the the overheating of the planet stops. There is no target short of zero that sort of does the job. Uh, so we will do it. The question is how fast, how soon? And, you know, the sooner we do it, the less damage we incur uh, to the earth itself, uh, to the plants and animals in it, and to human civilization. Um, the, the, the longer we drag our feet, the worse the situation is going to get. And you, you can already see the politics ramping up as people begin to perceive the level of risk, right? So I really don't have any doubt that ultimately the political demand will be so enormous that, you know, politicians can't put it off anymore and, and will wind up with sort of very strong public policies on climate. How soon we get there really, really, really matters for how bad the damage is going to be. This coming decade is absolutely critical. Uh, if we have not 
in the rich countries with the highest emissions, cut emissions substantially uh, by 2030, then we are not on track to meet any of the, either of the international targets uh, for 2050, where we're trying to ultimately limit uh, the, you know, the total amount of warming and therefore the, the total damage. Uh, uh, we just have to get on this pathway where emissions are falling. Right now, at a global scale, they're still rising, even though in some of the rich countries they are falling, but they're not falling fast enough. So, uh, you know, we, we think the book is timely now, and our appeal is now, not 30 years from now, because this is the critical decade. You know, are the 2020s going to be the decade where we finally turn the corner and emissions begin to fall at a global scale? And then it becomes a question of just how fast can we go? How fast can we get them down? Um, I, to the depths of my soul, believe that everybody's engagement in this matters. Uh, you know, some of the things we're asking for might seem small. I mean, how much difference is it going to make if your local school board sort of buys 50 electric buses? But, you know, if a thousand school boards do that, it makes a difference. Uh, th there's a report out today that... Um, uh, that the electrification we've already seen in cars has cut global oil demand uh, by uh, probably 3% already of, over what it would otherwise be. Uh, you know, electric cars are, are at about, uh, if you count hybrids, they're at about 13% of global sales at this point. So we're on our way with some of these things. And this is absolutely the critical decade. And it's absolutely the moment when uh, public policies, including state and local policies, can make the most difference. Well, on that note, this is the critical decade. I think that should be a, an important motivator, right? Uh, it, it feels like we are in an important place. So, so there are some decisions to be made. And uh, I hope people... Uh, you know, engage with your argument in The Big Fix. Thanks so much for coming on. Sure. Thank you. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in any of Trun's products or services, please check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. The topic in this podcast was what you can do to save the planet. And in this conversation, we talked about the areas where ambitious but eminently practical changes will have the greatest effect. My takeaway is that we should all want to take part in saving the planet, but the question becomes how we can be effective at it as individuals. As it turns out, there are numerous actions we can take and they involve far more than recycling. To move the needle, we might have to engage in state and local politics, evolving from green consumers to green citizens. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 158 on the real world beyond sustainability. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and on Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.